Welcome back to part two of the podcast, Cleary Independent, where I'm discussing the 2022 federal election with historian and author, Dr. Chris McConville. Well, Chris, the next cab off the rank is Ken White, who is an expert on China. So while I find him on the phone, can you please give our listeners your take on the China question? I think there's more than one China question, Phil. Give me one of them. Uh, well, one of, one of the basic ones is, uh, number one, China's our 30% of our uh, export market, uh, yet uh, politically we're in the camp that opposes China and we can't really reconcile those two, those two connections. Good afternoon, Phil. G'day, Ken. You know, Chris McConville was just talking about how we've put China in the enemy basket despite it being one of our major export markets, something that is close to your heart. But before I get your take on the China conundrum, I want to point out to our listeners that you studied at La Trobe University in the day. Uh, Many years ago, many, many years ago, Phil, that's correct. And what did you study, Ken? Um, History, sociology, Long before uh, the the fields of cinema studies and uh, these things uh, became available. And were you in the day called a Maoist? Yes, they would have called me that, Phil. <laughs> and, and you ended up, did you get arrested because of something you did at La Trobe University? Well, I was not actually, well, yes, yes and no. <laughs> uh, the first arrest was not actually at La Trobe University, but I was arrested a couple of times at the university. Tell, tell, tell fact, the I, listeners well, why. Back, I was arrested a few times, yeah. Well, tell everyone why you were arrested. The major one, we were, I was accused of, um, uh, uh, I think the charge sheet read uh, of trying to use uh, uh, bottles filled with petrol <laughs> or the, um for an explosive or an incendiary device at uh, the Honeywell Corporation in St Kilda Road. Uh-huh. I think that was, that was what the charge, charge sheet read. And did you get a trespass charge at La Trobe? Did they put an injunction on you? Was that you or something No, else? I was, no, I, I, I was uh, not one of those. I was... Um, was that Brian Poehler? Brian Poehler, Barry York, Fergus yeah. Robinson and Rod Taylor, yeah. Yes. I was... Um, actually not around at the that, uh, start of that year, uh, for obvious reasons. So, um, pe- so people are going to think you're a really dangerous radical. So let's, let's go to this point here. We, we prefaced it there. Tell us about your time in China. You taught in China for how many years? Oh, my God. I was away from Australia for, well, for about 16 years. I was teaching in China for probably 10 of those. Um, uh, at uh, in various parts of China, Shanghai, Beijing, uh, Kunming in uh, the southwest, a couple of lovely years in Guilin, beautiful part of the world, and uh, uh, Fujian province, and I finished up in uh, Dalian at a couple of universities uh, there, now, teaching uh, Australian studies and English literature. Now, people in Australia are being whipped out into a frenzy around China and China's alleged... Uh power encroachments 
tell us your perspective on, on China. Where does China sit in the world and in, in relation to Australia, in your mind? Um, that's a very good question. Um, and I often talk to my ex-students. In fact, I talk to a number of them um, at least once a week. The Chinese official position, of course, is that uh, they, they want to be an economic power. They see themselves as having a right to be an economic power, superpower, if you like. Uh, but they uh, seem to think that there's room for everybody, that it, uh, militarily uh, they're not interested in starting any military conflict because that, that will interfere with the economic goals. My students overall have a very positive attitude towards China, uh, towards Australia, sorry, uh, mainly because I taught them. But um, the the... The problem is now that they're just wondering why we hate them so much, why we, we, we're being so nasty to them. Now, of course, Australia is saying that uh, they're being very nasty to us, but uh, uh, their attitude is that, uh, you know, it's, it's a new, new, there's a new word that I've been working on, I just found it today, phenomenalism. And uh, uh, it, really, it really means that you decide... That, that what you're doing is right and what the other person is now reacting to is wrong and they're the person who caused the problem. Um, the Chinese see that they're reacting to uh, a provocation from Australia and they know it's the provocation really uh, from America. Australia doesn't want its own foreign policy. Let's, let's, let's cut to the chase. I think Chris has got a question for you. I know, but uh, the students that you're talking to about, Ken, um, I guess they're the sort of uh, going to be the... the movers and shakers of the society because they're educated, they know about the rest of the world. Um, so, um, Yeah, I suppose. That's uh, a good point. Um, so, I mean, how much influence can they have uh, independently of their government on Australian attitudes? Because we just seem to be getting the one line here and we don't seem to be getting any voices from, you know, Chinese middle class uh, perspectives or Chinese intellectuals coming into Australia and being able to shake up the sort of narrative we just continually get from the government? Well, it's uh, not that easy for them to come into Australia at the moment mm. for COVID. And uh, also they feel that uh, they're not welcome. They see that there's an anti-China bias, mm. um, certainly in the press, and from, um, unfortunately, both sides of politics uh, in Australia. Uh, but um, one, of my, one of my students, she works in a high-security um, a uh, space program, uh, a satellite space program. Another one works in private industry. Another one's a public to another two are public servants, and uh, one spends most of his time in Britain. So uh, they're, they're the five that I'm mainly in contact with, mm. and uh, they, they take uh, uh, they take a very questioning view on what their government says. But they're also very patriotic. Uh, there's two out of the four are members of the Communist Party. The other two aren't. Ken, do do you see? subliminal or avowed racism at work in the China narrative? Is that playing a role? The Chinese certainly see there's a, a racist attitude, yes. They do, There's do no they? question about that. And they, 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 they're, 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 they, they're quite confused by it. It's, um, you know, I can go back uh, well, quite a number of years when I was teaching a postgraduate class and, um, you know, we were just talking about America and they go... Well, why, why, do, why doesn't America like us? <laughs> well, I don't know. But at that stage, they were very fond of Australia. Then we had the Iraq War. And they, they, were, they were quite amazed that we just followed blindly into the Iraq War, as if we didn't have a foreign policy of our own. And they do see Australia 
it's more and more, it is more since I left China, I think, that they see this China as this, Australia as this colonial outpost of the former British Empire and now the American Empire. And uh, it's quite confusing for them. It's a, it's a fairly, uh, it's a quite a reasonable assessment, isn't it, Chris? What do you think? Oh, well, I think uh, we've headed that way, haven't we? Um, you know, for a while yeah. when, when Whitlam was uh, going around recognising Communist China and throwing his weight around as saying Australia's got to be have an independent. Well, it's not just Whitlam, Chris. Uh, we um, um, in, in my courses, uh, another bloke who was uh, uh, fairly popular, even from strange, is Malcolm Fraser, mm. because he they saw he was a good friend of uh, China mm. and someone who was mm. um, uh, prepared to do business with them. And also, uh, yeah, we uh, before I left, uh, his book uh, Unequal Allies. Um, was uh, was available in China about our unequal relationship with America. So, uh, yeah, they're quite wild, widely read, my kids. Don't worry about that. So, can, can I make? Can I make it before you go on, Phil? Can yeah. I make just make a point? Yeah, of course. Uh, in case people are listening to this, uh, those arrests were uh, we, we talked about earlier. They were over the Vietnam War. Oh, of Vietnam course. War people. Of course. I didn't want people to think that I'm <laughs> some uh, crazy terrorist running around uh, no, I, trying I, to blow, blow I, put things up just for something to do. I was going to return to just polish that up, Ken, because I didn't want any <laughs> yeah, uncertainty well, yeah, lingering. Let's get that straight, <laughs> yeah, you've done you've done it well. Well, people got arrested all the time. I was out there marching against Vietnam, but um, the Vietnam War, of course, uh, I didn't get arrested. Tell me, Ken, what what are older leftist people thinking in terms of this particular federal election right now? What's coming to mind for you? Well, I'll tell you what comes to mind for me, Phil. Uh, my wife just gave me $100 to take up to the local shopping centre and she said, uh, pick up uh, some wine after you've done the shopping. Well, uh, there wasn't much money left to pick up the wine, to be quite honest. There wasn't much on the shelves. Uh and I pulled out 50 bucks to uh, pay for my uh, shopping, and uh, it was $68. And later on, I'd realised I hadn't even paid for the bloody orange juice, which was $6. So well, no, there wasn't much left. So I, the fact that the fact that uh, the election may be too close to call uh, is an incredible indictment on the Australian Labor Party, I think. Well, that's going to be a nice segue to... Brian Boyd, the former ACTU executive ah, secretary yes, yes, of the Trotto Hall. Yes. We're going to have him on shortly, and I'll point out that you've found that $100 isn't going very far. So why is the Labor Party struggling to get the sort of traction we might expect it to get, Ken? Well, I think they've, they've moved so far away from their working class base that people can't identify them in, with them anymore. Look, I live in a very working class community and uh, every night we're out, uh, I'm either next door or next door, if you know what I mean. Uh, with a group of us, we just have a couple of beers and talk about uh, anything, usually the football or the rugby, which bores me senseless, but, um, uh, and, and we also talk about politics. And, and, and the whole attitude is that, you know, nobody is going to do anything for us. And these are, these, are, these are some of the people who retired, some of them are still working. And their whole attitude is they don't care about us, the ordinary, you know, punter. The other thing is that, you know, we've started, started to be a bit like the uh, so-called democratic squad and that in America, you know. We start to embrace the woke issues, not the bread and butter issues. Uh, that are the things that are important to the working people. So, Ken, where do you think the Labor Party lost its way? Is it very recent or has it been coming 
for 30 or 40 years and it's just got more extreme? Well, I think it lost its way when it uh, didn't uh, didn't stand up when Whitlam was uh, sacked. Mm. <laughs> That's a long time ago. Mm. Uh, and I think the person who, who helped lose its way was Bob Hawke. He could have called uh, uh, a general strike, as I remember uh, at the time. Uh, the, a number of the unions, especially the left unions in Victoria, were demanding a, a, a national strike, and, uh, and and Hawke refused to uh, endorse it. And if there had been a national strike, well, who knows? Some people say there might have been blood on the streets. Well, I don't know. Let's hope maybe maybe the Australian apathy turned out to be good on on that occasion. But if, if Hawke had have endorsed a, na- a national strike, there would have been a national strike at the time. People were very angry. Now, I know that didn't play out in the ballot box, but there was a, you know, like the Murdoch press. I remember Bill Hayden saying about, uh, you know, anything Whitlam said was, uh, may as well have come from Satan. He, and he, I remember one of his great quotes was, if, if Whitlam walked across uh, uh, um, Lake Burley Griffith in Canberra tomorrow, uh, the Murdoch press headline would be, Whitlam can't swim. <laughs> So, 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 bring yourself forward to Anthony Albanese. I did, funnily Who? enough. Uh, yes, funnily enough, I, I saw the interview uh, with Laura Tingle the other, I think, last night. Because I thought I'm going to do this podcast. I better watch in. I didn't think he was too bad, you know. But really, gee, wh- wh- why can't he capture our imagination? Is he being so constrained uh, by these speech writers and advisors? What's going on? I'm- I think that's a question for Brian Boyd. I think I know his answer. <laughs> well, I do know his answer because I spoke to him the other day. Yeah. But uh, I think that's a question for Boyd. Yeah. He yeah. knows these people far better than I do. I've never met Delbany. And uh, I had, uh, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm disappointed with the whole um, uh, foreign policy issue of the Labor Party too. They're just, they're, they're just, they're just reacting to, um, you know, the warmongering crap that's coming from uh, the Liberal Party, especially our our, our well beloved Defence Minister. I might add, he is well known in China, but he's not that well beloved. I can assure you of that. Well, just so, go, well, just going back to that point about China, Ken. I think it's, it's a really critical point you've made. You're saying that the the former students that used to teach, they can't understand why, in their words, people hate China. Australians, Americans hate China. That's right. Yes, they, they just they, they well, they can't understand it, and they see it as a form of colonialism, imperialism, and and the so-called the neoliberal world order trying to put mm-hmm. their values onto us. Now, these are kids that have studied overseas. By the way, one of my one of my closest uh, students was an intern, did an intern at, at the UN. Another uh, one of them did. Uh, uh, a semester in uh, UCLA in um, California. So these are, these are kids that are not indoctrinated uh, in any way by some party propaganda. And I must admit, in all the years I taught in China, nobody really questioned what I was teaching. In fact, I remember saying um, to um, uh, one of my bosses, lovely woman, I said, I'm not asking your permission for it. I'm just telling you what I'm doing. And she said, oh, well, okay. So, so, that, so, uh, the, so idea that, that, the idea that, that I was constrained in what I could talk about is rubbish. So there wasn't a propaganda handbook? No, no. Oh, well, probably some of the propaganda came from me, Phil, if there's any propaganda. <laughs> so, uh, 
Gee, um, Chris, have you got anything you want to put to no, Ken no, before? No, uh, Ken just about summed it all up, I think. Yeah, good on you, Ken. It's great to talk. And um, Yeah, no worries, Phil, any time. How's um, life up north? It's pouring rain at the moment, <laughs> also, um, but it's probably – but I, I was in um, – I went down – oh, gosh, as you know, I went down to uh, Geelong a couple of weeks ago and stopped in Ballarat to see my daughter, and she said, it's a lovely day today, and I said, I'm freezing. I want to go home. And then I went down to Geelong uh, and talked East David at lunch with a couple of few old mates of mine from St Joey's and uh, then went to the football the next day to see Geelong lose the unlosable game. So it was so I'm much <laughs> much happier up here, Phil. So if people want to hopefully I can hopefully I can get back to China soon. Yeah. Um, of course uh, and, and that's something else, but just let me put this yes. to your listeners. The one thing that the Chinese are worried about at the moment, well there's two major things. And I can assure you the Australian election is not one of them. The major thing is the virus, yeah, COVID. And uh, the second thing is uh, 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 the NATO war in, uh, in Europe against Russia. That's very concerning them. But uh, even Taiwan slips down the list. They're, they're, mm. And even people, when, when I was um, uh, studying uh, in England, I, you know, I sort of, I suppose I mentored a, a, some Chinese kids and a, and a girl from uh, Taiwan, and they were all mates. And, and I remember I didn't ask her, someone else asked her the question about reunification, and she said, it's going to happen eventually. Mm. It will happen eventually, and as long as people realise, and just let us do our own thing, we'll be right. And I think uh, that, <clears throat> that's something that I would like to uh, press on Western Westerners. Um, it's, it's a Chinese problem. Stay out of it. And so finally, Ken, uh, for those who want to check up and verify your record and what did happen to you all those years ago, I suppose they won't find it on the internet. Well, they have to go into the public records office and look up an old newspaper. And if they did, what date would they be looking for? Oh, we'd be looking at, uh, God, I wish you'd have told me this before. (laughs) I I haven't got a copy of it upstairs too far. have Uh, you? Yes. I think so, yeah, somewhere. It's a lot, or it's a certainly for photo. It, they'd have to go back to, um, I think it was something like January the 15th, God, uh, 1971. I think that's when, uh, 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 that was one of my court cases anyway, I remember that. So, and they so- had it in January so that they could... Couldn't have much of a demonstration about it because it was university holiday. So they were. That's like that, I was in Currybungle Prison Farm anyway. So they, I didn't really worry that much. They were writing about you 51 years ago, and here you are on a podcast. And of course, I was talking to you on 3AK in about that's 2003. Right. Oh, that was very famous. Uh, yeah. um, we, uh, I used to record some of that and play it for the students. <laughs> and, uh, but I remember how. Uh, the, the, the students, I'm sorry to hold up to but yeah, I remember how the students thought it was so, so, so funny that oh, you, you'd ask me, hey, what's the emperor saying today, Ken? And I'd say, hey, it's not the emperor, really, he's the president. And they'd say, no, no, you voted for him. I said, look, you don't understand. We're just having a bit of banter. Yeah, it's a bit and, of it. Yeah. And, 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 and I'd say, look, uh, I was talking to Hu Jintao, this is before Xi Jinping, and yeah. we were talking about the football, and we chatted about this, and uh, with a couple of other things that, you know, and what's going on? We talk a bit of politics, but not much. He, he gets sick of that. And it was, but the students were just amazed that some of our listeners in Australia actually thought that I did pick up the phone and ring the president of China. And he used to, at his private number, they thought that was rather, rather. Australians are very strange people, they said. Yeah. So. That's, that's, a, that's a perfect ending to our conversation, Ken White. Lovely right, to talk.
All right, mate. All the best. See give, ya. My, give my best regards to Boydie. Will do. See ya. Second. See ya, Chris. Second. So, Chris, uh, what about China before we go to Brian Boyd? Oh, no, look, I think some of those things that Ken said, if we distill them down, um, China is a major economic power and we've got to respect that. You can't pretend it isn't. Uh, two, Australia doesn't have an independent foreign policy and it should have one. And three, uh, probably need a bit more person-to-person contact and a bit more contact outside of the political leaders between some of the sort of people he taught and some of the people who are going through universities here so that we get a clearer picture of what Chinese people think about us rather than what our government tells us they think about us. Yes, so wouldn't it be interesting to properly know what Australians really think if we could separate that from the propaganda, which seems to suggest that Australians are all frightened of the Chinese? Is it really true? I don't think we are, but I think we've been sort of whipped into that position. We've got to remember too that when we talk about Australians, we're actually talking about a significant number of people who are Chinese yeah. and a significant yeah. number of people who are Chinese from Singapore or from Hong Kong and uh, talking about a population which in lots of ways is an Asian population now so they're not going to tolerate for much longer these ideas that have come out of a, a British and an American colonial perspective. And our young listeners mightn't even realise that they were here in the 1850s and there's one bloke buried in Dalesford Cemetery amazing and I, I've actually I think I ran that past Ken White sometime but go on Chris you're an historian. Oh, I was just going to say there's a lot of people in Victoria who uh, like to think that their ancestry is British and if they look closely enough they'd probably find there's one or two Chinese <laughs> snuck into the family tree because at the midpoint of the 1850s probably one in ten adult males in Victoria was Chinese uh, so there's been this long-standing Chinese mm. presence which was you know broken down by the white Australia policy. But before that, there'd been a significant Chinese population, especially, as you're saying, Phil, in the old gold towns. It would be beautiful uh, strategy, uh, sister city strategies. We would have them everywhere, wouldn't we, when we look at the gold field oh, that's right, yeah. of, of Victoria, for yeah. example? Yeah, well, Victoria, far north Queensland, uh, yeah. parts of uh, Northern Territory. Uh, even South Island and New Zealand, there was a significant Chinese mining population in the 1860s and 70s. Now, I'm just going to put this phone on. We're going to talk to Mr Brian Boyd, if he answers his Hello. phone. Hello. Brian Boyd, Secretary... Oh, long that yes. was a long hour, half an hour. Sorry, <laughs> Ken White started talking and he started talking oh. about you, Brian. And anyway, Secretary of the Victorian Trades Hall from 2004 to 2014, 10 years, that would have got you a good pension. ACTU <laughs> Executive, are you still on good terms with all those people, Brian? I, I still have a little gang of um, <laughs> trade union officials that we still talk together, but, you know, I wasn't uh, the favourite of everyone in the union movement. <laughs> And just, I, I always like to give people a bit of context. Wind this clock back to the early 70s. Uh, you were out there at La Trobe Uni. What banner were you carrying in your protest days, Brian? Uh, in the 70s, it was basically um, an anti-Vietnam uh, War uh, banner and probably the National Liberation Front flag for the uh, NLF in <laughs> Vietnam to win against the Americans, I think. <laughs> so you're barracking for some good teams. <coughs> well, we thought we were right, yes. And um, as it turned out, <coughs> they, um, they won, yeah. And you've had a bout with COVID, haven't you? I did a couple of weeks ago. 
there's still a little bit of um, uh, allergy afterwards, but I'm clear with uh, with the virus. Now, Brian, people don't talk about class much these days, but if we were, we might talk about particular workers of part of an older class, uh, the, the less uh, skilled worker maybe, and the problems of the living wage and the minimum wage, etc. And you're pretty strong about this. We've got a real problem at the moment in wage levels, haven't we? Well, we have, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with talking about the working class. There's a couple of, you know, there's different sections of it, but we've still got a working class in Australia that um, uh, aren't getting paid enough, and we've got the gig economy and the casualisation now that's undermining uh, organised work, uh, workers now. The union movement's suffering in terms of its coverage because of the gig economy, casualisation, um, you know, the breaking up of uh, workplaces into smaller units, all that sort of stuff has impacted on organised labour. Um, and now they're talking about people um, deserve a wage increase. They haven't had one for a long time. Um, and you've got a debate now in the middle of the uh, federal, the current federal election about that issue. So I think it's a very important one, and I've got a couple of views on it. Go for it. Oh, well, I mean, instead of uh, the silly old Scott Morrison talking about there's no magic wand and, uh, and silly old Albanese uh, talking about let's that, just go on uh, back to the Fair Work uh, Australia uh, body and uh, take a few cases there, and the ACTU going along with, with that, um, what we really need is the Fair Work Act change to allow for collective bargaining, industry-wide bargaining, and unions having proper right of entry rights um, that all got lost initially by John Howard's uh, and Peter Reese legislation back in the, um, the 1990s, early 2000s, where we ended up defeating work choices if you, uh, mm. and getting Rudd elected in 2007. Um, but uh, And they created the Fair Work Act off the back of work choices, which was really another version of work choices, work choices like we called it at the time. And um, when that other silly bugger uh, Abbott got in, 2013, he said, thanks very much for the Fair Work Act. It's as good as um, uh, uh, as uh, what we had planned for work choices anyway and left it alone. So the reason why they did that, Phil, is simply because the rights of workers through uh, their unions had been totally curtailed over the previous uh, couple of decades and we have no collective bargaining rights, we have no industry-wide bargaining, and right of entry of union officials is severely restricted. Now, if they lifted that, we don't need a magic wand, we don't need government legislation to give people a pay rise, we just need to free up the union movement to go and do what it does best, organise workers, let them you know, get out there and organise uh, industries and, 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 and workplaces, and then the wages will flow, but at the moment they're frozen because of, uh, of the uh, industrial relations legislation that is in place for the last 20 years. So, Brian, could you just maybe for the listeners explain a bit more about what you mean by collective bargaining? Because a lot of people would just simply assume that the Fair Work Act allows for collective bargaining. No, they don't. There's all sorts of restrictions about how you can get people to have a right to have a meeting and have the right to strike to back up. Uh, you have to get permission for all of that. All, all of that collective bargaining has so many restrictions on it 
that um, you go into any workplace or any industry, uh, you, you, you have to give permission. And by the way, uh, the Conservatives have stacked the Fair Work uh, Commission with all sorts of Conservative commissioners anyway. So uh, Mr Albanese saying, let's go back to the Fair Work Commission, they're going to have no luck there at all. The ACTU need to insist on the right to bargain in the workplace with no restrictions on how you go about it. And Brian, when you say industry-wide bargaining, so I guess what we've got now is bargaining enterprise by enterprise. So you would be saying, say, in the gig economy, that there'd be um, collective bargaining, say, for all food delivery workers, regardless of which firm they're being run around by. Yeah, that's where I'm coming from. We really need collective bargaining for all of those workers wherever they work for, not just, um, you know, Deliveroo or whoever they, uh, they work for. We need... Uh, the ability of unions to organise those people and to do it collectively across all of those uh, gig economy enterprises instead of just one at a time. It's interesting too, Brian, because it has implications for political consciousness and political activism. So under an enterprise agreement, of course, you can't step out and protest. You couldn't walk out and protest about the jailing of Julian Assange or a range of other matters, can you? Because you're in contempt of the, of the Act. Well, you, you, you're totally correct. Not only has the uh, legislation since uh, over the last 20 years from work choices right through to the Fair Work Act restricted what you uh, um, uh, what workers can do. Basically, they can only focus on a, a couple of things within their own industry and whatever. If there's wider social issues, for instance, protecting uh, Medicare, uh, Julian Assange's uh, uh, situation, any other issue, uh, you know, like the threat of war um, yeah. with all... The, talk that uh, Morrison and Dutton are talking about and you want to protest about that. Yes. Like we used to do with uh, unions, used to do a lot of stuff about Viet, uh, the anti-Vietnam war, the anti-Iraq war, all those things, tens and hundreds of thousands of workers. We well, can't do that anymore under the current legislation. Is it depressing, Brian, as a former activist and prominent trade union official in very critical roles, watching the ALP at present, or is it just, you know, should we just get over that and, you know, continue to organise? What's it like for you, looking back at it retrospectively? Well, I've got to be honest with you, Phil. You know, I'm a grumpy old um, trade union official and um, and political activist of 50 years now. Um, I've been retired for a few years. Um, so I do get a bit grumpy watching the TV news. I do get a bit uh, angry and point at the screen and call a few people dickheads and bloody don't know what they're doing. And, I, I, and you know, to watch that union courage, I, I mean, when I left, it was down to 20% already. When I started, it was 50% in the 70s and 80s. But when I, when, uh, when I left, it was about 20%, uh, which wasn't too bad. But now we're down to 11 or 12%. And... and and in the private sector, 9%. Now, that's just not viable in terms of having an effective um, trade union base to be able to argue for collective bargaining and also to respond to those wider social and political issues that come up. So I do get a bit grumpy, Bill, um, and, um, you know, uh, I don't despair because I don't want to give up, <laughs> no. but I do get grumpy, yes. Do you, do you head down to the art gallery or watch football, or what do you do? You read a book, you're, you were an erudite sort of bloke in the day. Oh, no, I, I, I was a, a bird, I'm a bird watcher, I'm a, an, yes. a, an ornithologist. I remember, you I were, that. yes. I, I get to the art, the art centre occasionally because I like artwork and that sort of stuff. 
I do photography, a bit more photography than I used to do. I'm into that a bit now. And, of course, at my age, I've got some grandchildren. I've got three yeah. grandchildren at the moment, and you will be surprised at how much time and effort and <laughs> how you think about them, you know. Um, Brian, um, you know, you're keeping up a brave face about the decline of the union movement, but what about some of these poor guys out there trying to get people to join unions in some of these uh, gig economy jobs you talked about? What do you think's the best tactic they can use? I, I lament what they'd have to put up with because the current legislation makes it hard. You, you, you can't get in there uh, uh, without permission. You can't, uh, you can't get in there without giving notice. And if they don't give you permission, then you, you've got to start from scratch. So the gig economy, putting aside um, you know, bigger workplaces that are getting hammered, we've got a few exceptions like the health industry where the nurses have still got some say, the teachers have still got some say, the building unions have still got some say. Uh, uh, but in manufacturing, I think um, uh, the metal workers have suffered with the decline in manufacturing. And, but more importantly, the gig economy and the casualisation of labour per se right across the board, it's like a cancer. I would lament being a, a, an, a, an organiser for a union. Uh, and when I see them on TV now and again, when they, they are doing something, I cheer. I think it's great to see some of these new people coming through, but they're doing it hard from a, from a very low base compared to my day. Indeed, Brian. Gee, it's great to catch up and have a yarn. You stay well and manage that cough from the COVID. And anything else you want to say as you leave us? I'm hoping we get some relief from that Morrison and Dutton and co. They've really brought disrepute to uh, this great nation of ours. I'm hoping Albanese and his team have, can crack through, but they're a little bit ordinary, really, compared to what we really need to be able to beat these conservative bastards. But So I'm just crossing my fingers. We need some relief from Morrison and co. so that Australia can go forward rather than uh, just become another satellite of the, of the US. Good thinking. What's your favourite drop of red these days, Brian? Uh, a good Shiraz from uh, central Victoria, hopefully in the 1990s to early 2000s vintage. <laughs> Look out for it. Always great to catch up, Brian. Stay well. All right. See you guys. Bye. See you, Brian. So there you have it, Chris. So we're going to wind up. Let's talk housing and education and the climate, of course. But what about on housing? Uh, we, we were having a yarn yesterday. We talked about growing up in areas where there were housing commission. I was in Coburg, East Coburg, the big housing commission. I thought they were quite good houses, brick, nice timber inside. Gee, we don't see them anymore. What's happened? No, well, governments just don't build houses. That's the, the starting point. I mean, I think only 1% or 2% of houses built now are state-owned housing, whereas if you went back to those places you were talking about from the mid-century, last century, or some of the even older ones in Fitzroy and Richmond, uh, I was walking through the, what was the Richmond racetrack yesterday, which became a public housing scheme in 1941. Originally that land was slated to be a tobacco factory and the council and the state government agreed eventually after a bit of uh, head bashing. Uh, some of the boys in Richmond thought tobacco factory might have been quite a good idea. Uh, but they eventually decided to turn that into public housing for people in Richmond who'd suffered during the mm. Depression and were tenants and living in pretty terrible accommodation. And you walk through there now, and that's a fantastic uh, area. Uh, if that was in Turak or somewhere else, they'd be millions and millions of dollars, those buildings. They're 100 years old, nearly, and they're still in fantastic condition. Now, we just don't do that. I mean, the Housing Commission got caught up in building high-rise buildings rather than building 
medium density or detached houses. Um, we didn't hand money to local government to continue that process. And we seem to think, as with everything else, that the private sector does it better. Well, we, we know in the actual buildings it doesn't do it better. Mm. But secondly, in terms of financing, ownership or renting, we know that the private rental and housing market just hasn't provided houses for ordinary Australians. That's why home ownership figures are going down and people who are renting just cannot find rentals that fit with median wages. Some of the questions we've raised today, including housing, uh, we'll come to education again, but health, require government expenditure. Anthony Albanese was asked about this on 7.30. He didn't really have an answer. It was about growing the economy. So the revenue is going to come from growing the economy. That sounds like a, a lead into indirect tax, more GST, rather than taxing the rich. And we know the tax cuts recently did not serve the ordinary punter when we look at it uh, pro rata or proportionately. So why can't we put the tax question on the agenda? And what, would, what might it look like, Chris? Well, people have been conned into this idea that uh, taxes are wasted money. Uh, and but they forget about the fact that just about everything you do in your daily life at some point has had a tax subsidy supporting it. I mean, every time you get in your car and drive around, uh, there's one or other tax is funding that travel you do around the city. You go to a hospital and you're really ill, you're going to finish up in a publicly funded hospital. So we've, I think, first of all, we've got to get over this notion that tax is always bad. Sure, people do bad things with taxes and waste them. Um, but we've seen, uh, you know, the private uh, mechanisms of handing out job seeker to large companies that didn't need it during mm. COVID has, has been a waste. So let's get over the idea that you can't tax things and do something effectively with tax. Uh, but then in terms of housing, uh, again, we've got an attitude that, um, I mean, it's, no one really wants cheap housing. The only person who wants cheap, affordable housing is the person at the moment they're bidding for a house at an auction or trying to buy one, they want the price to go down. The minute they've signed on the dotted line, they want that price to go up because the rest of their life is under economic pressure and the only way they can get ahead of low wages um, and the cost of living is that the equity in their house goes up. So the seller wants the price to go up. So the estate agent wants the price to go up because they get a bigger commission. So we've turned housing into something that isn't um, a basis for life and a way you live your life into this financial, I mean, pack of cards, really, that you yeah. throw around and everybody thinks they'll fall on the right face. With, and with make negative money. gearing in amongst it as well. Yeah, all of that sort of thing. But I think it's there's a couple of things. One is getting over the idea that the state can't provide something good and we can look back at housing mm. in particular. Mm. We can see it all around it where the state has provided something that's a lot better than the private market can provide. So I have to get over that attitude. Two, I think we need to get back to thinking about housing and the urban environment as a place for living and a place for developing creative human beings rather than just an asset you can throw up, make money out of it and move on. And, you know, when we're coming here today, Phil, we went through Docklands. Now that's just a, you know, a wonderful sort of space in Melbourne that we could do something fantastic with. What have we done with it? We've thrown up high-rise buildings uh, apartment blocks that mm. struggle to get tenants, offices that after COVID are probably never going to be filled, and streets that just don't take advantage of those views over the water, and very little spaces for pedestrians. And there's one fantastic community facility in there. That's the dock, the library and community centre, but that's, that's run by City of Melbourne. It's not provided by private developers. So 
China's a form of state capitalism, a planned economy. I mean, we've probably reached a point where we've got to re, re, revisit, don't we? Planned economies, better planned economies, well, more government intervention. If we're going to talk climate control, for example, or climate emergency, also. Well, I think what COVID showed us is that you, when you face a crisis, you can't mm. you can't organise it through private agencies. You have to do it through some sort of central government agency. And yes, government should be efficient, and government should be responsive to the people. We all know that. Uh, but you can't sort of just say, oh, I'll stick the government to one side, forget about it, it's useless, hand it over to private enterprise. Mm. They're always going to do it better because that just it just isn't how things work. And neither are things like private-public partnerships. I mean, if they were a serious partnership with the government as a serious player, then they might work. But if you're just saying, well, the government will sponsor this private development like a toll road, it's not necessarily going to work for moving around a city which again is a perfect segue to education, we're seeing a drift away from state schools to private schools, and we know private schools are hev heavily subsidised. The rich ones are in particular. So w what do we do about that? Well, I think one thing that needs to be done is to recognise the qualities of the public system. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I think people look at exam results, and if exam results are what really counts, well, um, they probably don't count all that much nowadays, but if you take that as a yardstick, um, the results of students who get into university or get high marks comes from their family background and their mm. social environment. Mm. Most of the time, the school is a secondary factor. Mm. But I think people have thought, oh, I want my kid to get into the best university, get the best job. Well, good university is no guarantee of a good job if the good jobs don't exist. Um, and so the, the think, oh, I've got to get them. They're people are just trying to do right for their kids, get them out of the, prop, uh, the public sector, into a private school. It's not necessarily the case that that's an advantage. Uh, and yeah, of course, there's some bad public schools out there, but that can be answered by, I think, better teacher training and bigger investment in the, in the uh, public sector system. If you're going to keep pouring money into the private sector schools, well, of course, public schools are going to eventually fall behind. And, the, and there is a big demand for public education. Uh, we've seen it, if we want to use a couple of examples, in the northern suburbs, there was a Coburg movement around uh, a new high school in Coburg and, and they kind of got their way and, and I was contacted the other day I think by a group called Rise and they're talking about Pasco Vale girls and hoping it becomes well there's a discussion around it being co-ed but, the, but the, at the core of this question is public schools putting resources into the public schools and they're talking about the very things we've discussed was the drift away to the private sector and even yes you make a school richer and better if, you, if you're bright if you're bright working class or bright Others don't leave. Exactly. I mean, and it's it's similarly what we're saying about football clubs in the local community. I mean, the high school then becomes part of the wider community rather than being this little island separate from the world around it. Putting resources into the areas that are disadvantaged more than the wealthier areas to, to build them up and then the school becomes, in a way, a bit of the vanguard for improving life more generally in a local area rather than something where education... Is just oh, what mark do I get at the finish of my school years, and where can I go off to? It becomes something that's embedded in the local area. I think you know. I think in country towns sometimes the school can work that way, but it's got to be properly resourced. And so, in this election, we don't have 
these kind of conversations really do we? Not at all, Phil. I think this is the first one I've had. I mean, and, and it's not like I'm you know, blowing our tyres up. You know, we've had considered people on this podcast talking about questions, you know. And here we are, we have a, a Labor Party that can't generate a serious debate about the big social and economic questions that matter to people. And I reckon people talk about in their private settings, down at the local footy club, elsewhere. It's bad, isn't it? Oh, I think it's... Uh, I think most people um, see it as pretty sad, really. Yeah. Uh, and that... that uh, I think as Claire Wright was saying earlier on, Australia was one of the places where women won the vote before other places in the world. It was a very advanced democracy in the 19th century. I mean, people called secret ballots in many parts of the world the Australian system. So Australia led the way in democratic structures and in social welfare up to about the time of the First World War. And bit by bit, unfortunately, we've been chipping away at that tradition. I think, um, I think if anything, what the Teal independence might actually do is revive that respect for popular democracy, regardless of any individual policies, and they're all important policies. We've had these sorts of conversations before, but around the narrative, you know, we have to change the discussion out there. You, you won't change anything until you change the discussion. So if we get a, a cluster of independents in the parliament, and we've moved a little bit towards that in the last parliament, we might be half a chance, but we do need some uh, some uh, independents who aren't just... What does the word teal mean? Is that supposed to be a version of blue or something? <laughs> well, is I, mean, it? I don't know whether they think they all play for Port Adelaide. But, <laughs> what, what, what is it? <laughs> is it supposed to be small L liberal or something? Oh, I just think, isn't it the colour on their posters? But I don't think they're all even using teal anyway. There could, wouldn't be a can of teal paint left in the metropolis yeah. if that well, was the case. Well, they're in conser more what we've called conservative electorates, but we, we need people in those other electorates, and you touched on this with Claire earlier, we need those people speaking too. Oh, yeah, look, I think, and I think what Claire was hinting at was this might be a start that might spread to other areas. But I think once you do that, then you've got to start reconfiguring the notion of independence because the sort of independent like yourself who's going to work in, um, you know, no disrespect, Phil, but I don't think you would have got too many votes in the northern suburbs of Sydney. <laughs> um, but you get quite a few in a lot of the working class areas out to the west yeah. of Sydney. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, it's sort of funny too because Claire made a... Uh, a quite a pertinent point. I mean, when she's talking about the gender, my football origins were relevant to being elected in Wills, you know, but, but that was partly about popular culture too. So it's a little bit more complex, but it did have a gender, mm. a gender component to it. So is podcasting going to open the way that we thought social media might open the way, but social media has just collapsed into individualism? And I'm not saying our podcast is going to conquer the world, but these these conversations we need to have, don't we? Yeah, yeah, sure, we do, and I think we need to have them. That's sort of been done. not trying to push the local local barrow too much, but they need to be done at local areas and uh, podcasts. Yeah, you can localise podcasts, but it needs to, needs to be also face to face in the local community. I think. Yes, Chris, the street corner, the local sporting club, podcasts, and as the great philosopher and thinker Karl Marx said, criticising after dinner. Thanks for listening to this election special on Cleary Independent. My suggestion is that if you can find a genuine independent out there prepared to fight for a better, more equal society, and for Julian Assange, I'd say 
give them your vote. Next week, I'll talk with Grace Donato, who lost her daughter, Adriana, to one man's act of violence in 2012. And the week after, I'll talk football and life with former teacher and Brunswick boy, AFL legend Robert Walls. Stay tuned. <laughs>